This is Air Commander Starscream, and you are listening to Half Measures. Uh, Half Measures? Sounds like Megatron's battle strategy. <laughs> This episode of Half Measures is brought to you by Time Travelling Team. I'm Paddy. Each week, Paul and Dan do a fantastic job guiding us through the wide world of movies and TV shows. Meanwhile, my co-host Trisha and I are taking a trip through the time vortex and discussing the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey world of Doctor Who. Starting back from the earliest adventure in 1963, we're discussing the stories, the Doctor, the companions and the villains of this iconic show. You can find us at Time Team on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Now sit back, relax and enjoy as Paul and Dan do their thing. Half measure style. Kia ora and welcome in to another episode of Half Measures. It's episode 68, and if you can hear the excitement in vi- my voice, that is because this week's podcast coincides with the kickoff of the European Championships, which is expected to attract a worldwide audience of over 2 billion over four to five weeks. So it probably comes as no surprise that we are going to be talking about nothing but football for the next four podcasts. And who better to talk football with than the man who was once on the box of Dundee United? It's the midfield maestro himself, Dan Whiting. Kira Dan. Come on, my son. Kia ora, Paul. I'm very excited about this football. What one of these teams does uh, T. Lesso coach? <laughs> You literally had no idea that the uh, Euro 2020 is kicking off today, did you? I don't know whether you're angry or sad about these things. Last time we talked about football, some clubs were being shut down, some new ones were being set up. I don't know. Now you're happy. It's it's a wild ride for me. That's the Premier League. This is different. This is this is world international football. Um, let's let's not have any listeners. Yeah, let's let's not have anyone tuning out just in case there was any thought that I might be being serious. But it is my apology for the next four weeks that if I'm coming in light each week, it's because I've been watching like about 20 hours of football a week for the next month. So uh, I'm just saying it right up front. I'm um, I'm really the biggest disappointment in the world when it comes to sport. Like, so what what team are you going for here, Paul? What's the what's what's the team you're backing? I'm backing England. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you worked it out for yourself almost, didn't you? <laughs> uh, I think because I kind of phased out a little bit when you were talking about what it was and then like I kind of came back and I'm like, okay, I got you. I got you. I'm with you. I could see England. your worried I could see your worried face as I when I started off with all this energy, you're like, What is wrong with this guy? <laughs> it's good. It's good to be passionate about things. Talking of passion, Dan, I have watched a few things this week that have been exciting, but why don't you Kick us off and tell us what you've been watching. All right, all right, all right. All right, so the first thing that I have watched is a little Netflix um, series. I've only watched season one of Castlevania, and this was recommended to me by somebody I work with. It's an animated TV show. It's been on my, I guess, my Netflix watch list for, God, at least, at least, 18 months, maybe a year, and I don't know why, but I was, I've just sort of been hesitating watching it, and I pretty much binge-watched the first, the first season's only about four episodes long, and they are four fantastic little episodes, like they're about 20 minutes each, um, it's got a fantastic cast, it's got a great storyline, it's got a great sort of adult sort of theme tones to it, 
I had a hell of a lot of fun. And what's great is I've got another three seasons to watch. So there's four seasons out at the moment. And it's basically the story of a, a vampire hunter um, who's saving a besieged city from an, ar- an army of otherworldly creatures controlled by Dracula. And my sort of awareness of Castlevania is probably more is in the in the video game realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one, you know, the person who recommended this to me was was raving about it. So I gave it a whirl and had a fantastic time. I'm looking forward to watching the next three seasons. Yeah, I just thought that there's four seasons here. And the, as you say, there is an amazing cast with this. I mean, you've got Richard Armitage, you've got um oh James Callis, um Baltar from Battlestar Galactica. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of people who just get Brian Finlay from Downton Abbey. There's Jason Isaacs. Wow, this is rated real high as a really, I guess, a a real proper adult cartoon by the looks of the rating. Yeah, like it's definitely got it's got a real anime sort of vibe and and feel to it. But just it's got some fantastic uh, lines of dialogue and scenes, particularly between um, uh, Richard Armitage's character who plays trevor belmont who's basically a comes from a family uh of i guess vampire slash monster hunters from what i understand so far it's just it's really good it's it really exceeded my expectations i think sometimes with these animated shows i'm not quite sure whether is it going to be for me or not which sort of probably feels weird to say because i'm often talking about animated shows like mortal Kombat and stuff on the podcast but yeah no look i i I don't know why I waited. Um, I guess the, the advantage of waiting is I've now I've got a few seasons to catch up on, and the future seasons are a little bit longer as well. There's about eight episodes per season from now on, which is good. Everything about this says Dan Whiting to me. I mean, just reading that synopsis: a vampire hunter fights to save a besieged city from an army of otherworldly creatures controlled by Dracula. This has got you written all over it. It does. It does. It's it's good. Uh, and then the other thing that I've watched is. I've seen a movie, um, which is a pretty new one out on Disney Plus premiere. You can also see it at the movies. Um, we watched Cruella over the weekend. So this is the live action prequel uh, feature film of a young Cruella Deville, which you may remember from 101 Dalmatians. Mm. It has been an age since I've seen 101 Dalmatians, probably at least 30 plus years since I've seen uh any sort of movie in that realm. So this movie stars uh, Emma Stone as Cruella, and this is a, a sort of a, a what would I say, almost a little bit, a little bit dark, definitely a little bit quirky, quite a bit of fun, I think, for a Disney movie. And I've got to be honest, I came into this with pretty low expectations. Didn't really have sort of any major sort of memories of Cruella or any sort of thoughts about what a, a prequel might be and it was just it, it was a lot of fun I think they had um they did a, a great job casting Emma Stone in this great to kind of see the the character arc of um Cruella is actually Estella is actually her name and and Cruella almost becomes her her alter ego mm. and it's got a real sort of almost like Harley Quinn vibe to it for me as she sort of goes on this journey and um ultimately becomes a, a bit of a, a powerhouse. And I think what's what's really cool about this movie is it's really sort of deep in, in the sort of fashion genre, and they really lean into that pretty heavily. They do some amazing costumes in this show. Probably my one critique of the movie is it's maybe a little bit long. Mm. Like this movie's two hours, 14 minutes. And in that sense, it sort of makes me wonder, I don't – like it's probably – 
not a, a young audience who's going to be into it, but probably, you know, sort of early teen or a uh, young adult or definitely an adult who sort of grew up with 101 Dalmatians because it's got some quite sort of dark elements to it all. But it's, as I say, a lot of fun, um, definitely one to watch. You could probably hold out till it comes off Premiere Access and then give it a whirl, but look, I had a, a, a great time. It's interesting to hear you talk about it having that adult sort of theme as well, because I was thinking, would this be something that would be okay for the, for the kids? And I'm wondering whether or not it, it actually would be. I um I love the original 101 Dalmatians. I actually even had the books, and I'm just looking at some of the images of that now. And I love Jasper and Horace, you know, the two guys, and I've just seen how um, they've cast them really well too. So um, there'll be definitely something in it for me. Emma Thompson, of course, I've, you know, the big thing, the two Emmas being cast in this has got a lot of press attention. I do wonder, um, you know, a bit like I remember talking about the Adams family and there's all sorts of dark humour in that. I would imagine a lot of that probably goes over the over the heads of most yeah. young people, so it's probably okay. Nice. And I think it's still Disney at the end of the day. Um, there's, um, you know, they, they do play it pretty close to the line. But, yeah, it's – I imagine the kids would find it fun, but I, I do wonder like, – it might be a bit long for them because it definitely is a quite a long-winded story. I sort of feel like a few of the scenes kind of repeat themselves. But that is a really good shout to Jasper and Horace, in particular Horace who is uh, Stingray from Cobra Kai or um, our Richard Jewell from a, another movie we re- reviewed earlier on the pod. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's got Mark Strong. That's honestly has such a, a great cast. And I've heard recently just in the news that they're actually looking at doing a, a, a part two to this movie as well, which is pretty cool. So I think it's cool that Disney's exploring stuff like this where – you know they're they're taking a concept and they're they're doing something different with it. They're they're really sort of fleshing out a character and they're you know Cruella isn't a character sort of at face value you would think you'd you know enjoy or like because mm. she's always been you know such a hardcore villain in the, in the Disney universe. But when it's Emma Stone playing Cruella and it's live action, it's a whole different genre. See, in my mind, Cruella was always sort of. I don't know. She always felt like she was 50 or 60 years old. So um, this is quite deliberately casting her much, much younger. So that's interesting in, in itself. And I like the idea of it being a, a spin-off on a character rather than necessarily just doing the full the full remake, which I guess they've, they kind of really did that, didn't they? Back in the 90s, they did the remake, but that was still animated, wasn't it? And it's tough, right, because I think, you know, you're dealing with a a subject matter or or a character. You know, when you think back to 101 Dalmatians, you know, my memory of that plot is her basically trying to kill 101 Dalmatians so she could turn their, their... um, their skins into into coats and you know in 2021 that's not really a story that anyone wants to hear so I think what they've done with this is really really smart and really clever nice nice one and apart from sort of those things that we've both watched Paul that's, that's what I've been watching this week awesome well uh, for myself uh, I watched a movie this week it's a it's an older one but it checks out um Diana said to me, this is one of my favorite movies. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And when someone says that to me, they have my attention instantly. And so when my wife says those words, well, I had no choice but to find this movie. And this movie is 2013's The Conjuring. Uh, and luckily we were able to to rent this on neon here in new zealand so this is uh, about uh, the paranormal investigators ed and lorraine warren who work 
to help a family terrorised by a dark presence in their farmhouse. Now, Dan, you've seen this one, haven't you? I have, and look, I, this was a great movie, um, albeit quite terrifying and one that sits with you for quite a long time. Yeah, and for me, as you well know, this is not a genre I, I go for horror, typically. It's not really my wheelhouse, as they say. But, well, I guess if you discount science fiction horror, I never really choose. It's always someone else's suggestion that makes me, that draws me in. But this movie, I, I would say this is as scary a movie as I can think of. So you remember a while back, a few podcasts back, we did that uh, films to be buried with. And the the scariest movie for me was the Blair Witch Project. I would I would say I'd put it up there in terms of the same sort of feeling coming out of this. I enjoyed this from start to finish. I I did not necessarily expect to. Um, it really worked, and I have to admit, what I find the most compelling and the most scary and the, I guess the most effective way of making me jump out of my seat is actually some of the the quieter the more subtle type scary things that happen. And typically those things happen in like the first third of the movie as it's just just sort of building up a bit of pace and a bit of mystery. By the time you get to the end, um, as with many movies, the finale gets bigger and louder and more drama and more music. And and that's fine. But that by that point, things are less jumpy and that's when it becomes less effective at scaring me. But the first third, well, the first two thirds were good, but the first third in particular, that is as scary as anything else I've ever seen. Plus, of course, I had the absolute entertainment of watching it with, with Diana, who when she jumps out the chair, it's just, it makes it makes it worthwhile, even if the movie was rubbish, in which it wasn't. It most certainly wasn't. I often find the, um, I guess, like horror movies like this, which I often am normally, I'm so fascinated and I have to watch them, even though I know I'm going to be scared and shooketh after seeing it. And I remember watching The Conjuring, uh, I've only seen it once, but I, I deliberately watched it during the day because Samara is definitely not going to watch this type of movie and I need to have like daylight around me just so that I know I'm okay. The, the other thing with this movie, and I think about this way too often is so my uh Samara's Samara's parents own an antique store and I often think about some of the creepy things that they have in their antique store and I think about them as vessels in the sense of the conjuring all the time and sometimes there'll be like a creepy doll in there or just something weird and it's kind of like it gives me like conjuring shudders for anyone who's thinking what might they buy Dan Whiting for birthday or Christmas this year I think He's just given us the answer we we all need. That's exactly what we're going to do now. Um, you're right. That that um, that doll was absolutely terrifying, and it was the little things like that, like um, like when they're looking in that spinning mirror, and when the mirror stops, a face will appear. And I so I watch this at night, not in the daytime. And I have to admit that is is the, is the only way to watch it. I think because it, it is you know, so scary. I have this thing I do, I don't know about you, but I, um, I try, I can see that something's coming. And so I mentally prepare myself. I start thinking, okay, don't, don't be shocked. This is, this is about to happen. She's going to close the door and he's going to be right behind it. All those sorts of things. And it never works. It just, it, it still ends up just completely scaring you. But yeah, those little things like they were doing, I don't know how much you remember, but like clap and hide around the house or hi, sorry, hide and clap 
And so you had to, you'd give it a clap and then they'd, they'd walk around and they'd say, oh, give me a second clap. And, and then there was like this clap coming out of the wardrobe where there's no one in the wardrobe and just this pair of hands coming out. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I think what, and I think this is what sort of skews me the most about these sorts of films is, especially with a, a movie like this where at the end it's like, or, or it might have been at the start, you know, based on sort of a, a, a true story. And it's like, that is enough to scare the crap out of me, Paul. And even though I have, you know, never had some sort of supernatural experience, I feel like this stuff is, is so much more unknown and scary to me as opposed to, you know, a, a, a Freddy or Jason sort of like villain who's kind of like, you know, killing kids in the campground or in their dreams whereas this feels so much more like it it's, feels more unexplained and you know could be and terrifying and and there's always something about these films and it's the same it was the same with Blair Witch same with Paranormal Activity I become so intrigued with it I have to see it and that's where I sort of like I have to see it but it also messes me up a little bit no, I get it. I get it. And um, I understand because you know, it piqued my interest that there's more movies and Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, who both I thought were really good in their roles. I thought they were both, they worked really well, good chemistry. And I hear that they, they come back. Um, they're certainly in the next one anyway. I don't know about the ones after that. I've tried not to look, so I don't support anything. But um, so I'll definitely go seek out the, um, the second one because um, look, I, Oh, can I also give a shout out to Lily Taylor, who is an actress who I don't think I've ever seen before, but she's the one whose character becomes possessed towards the end of the movie. And she's, you know, she's in the chair with the sheet over. And I'll tell you what, she looks possessed. She really does that well. And I just thought she was absolutely amazing. And from the moment she was possessed, she became an absolute, the thing of nightmares. And I give this three out of four guns on the, the guns of Kimbo scale. Uh, and that is officially the highest I've ever given any horror movie. So, um, yeah, pretty good. I think, I think too, just the other thing you've you've got to give a shout out to. When I do convince Samara to watch a, a scary movie, her screams are often more terrifying than the actual <laughs> frights that you get from the movie. I don't know if you experienced this with Diana, but it's like, and then you kind of are like, oh, why are you doing this? Like, like I probably, I probably would have been okay, but like, yeah. it's such a a gasp and a cups of tea flying everywhere and popcorn all over the place that that becomes the the real fear yes it really is i don't know why if i should tell you this but after the movie and i could hear diana was walking around in the bedroom and i could hear her saying something like she was talking to herself as she was coming back she was like oh i had to put the light on because i just didn't want to walk in there without the light on and i was just stood waiting in the dining room with the lights off just stood right next to the white curtain sort of wearing dark clothes it's just my silhouette and i just stood motionless <laughs> it was so good it was so good i i had a i remember when i watched the movie the ring um and i don't know if you know about that movie paul but basically like you get a you get a phone call and like like there's no there's no one on the other end or something and then you know some, something happens from memory and I remember this a similar thing watching the ring movie and then having my phone like under you know under my leg and like ringing the house phone and it ringing and no one being there right after the movie and you know equally scaring some people so it's weird you know I obviously you know don't like being scared myself but I don't mind giving people a fright real a-hole <laughs> so good um other than the things we've watched 
together. I've only watched one other one other thing because there's been quite a lot of watching going on this week. Um, and this was uh, on Netflix, uh, the 2020 Two Distant Strangers. And um, yeah, this one, this was a recommendation and I'm, I'm so glad I, I, I watched it. Um, it's about a, uh, a cartoonist called Carter James and his repeated attempts to get home to his dog are thwarted by this recurring loop that he, like a time loop he gets stuck in, forcing him to relive uh, a deadly run in with a, with a cop. And, and so without wanting to devalue or make light of the content or, or the message here to this, there, there are elements of this that are very much like Groundhog Day, just minus all of the humor. And I mean, all of the humor, you know, like it's, um, it's, it's a terrifying thing where he wakes up and it's, it's really worth watching. It stars, uh, Joey Badass and Andrew Howard. And it's a, it's a really powerful piece. I, I don't want to spoil it. The ending is, is quite unexpected. There's a very important, you know, message in this movie that sheds light on, you know, even more light on all of the, uh, appalling deaths, which of course, you know, George Floyd was just probably the most prominent of, of, of all of them of, of late and, and and all of them at the hands of the police and all of them in such innocent situations where those deaths occurred and how unacceptable it is. And it, and it really, it really does have an effect on you watching this and it, and it sticks with you after watching it. It's, it, it doesn't hold any punches the way it's shot um, in terms of, uh, yeah, it's uh, and uh, I don't know how to say this other than to say shout out to Andrew Howard, the actress who the actor, sorry, who plays the the, the white cop, because I just can't imagine that would be an easy role to play to repeatedly do what he. It's um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely worth watching. It's as I say, it's uh, it's on it's on Netflix and um, yeah fully recommend i've i've seen this uh a couple of times on my feed and thought it looked quite interesting only you know short at 32 minutes but um mm. i'll definitely have to check it out i i guess i've kind of been looking for the right time to watch it because you know you kind of can tell by the, the the poster of this one that it's gonna be some pretty dark content so mm. no 100 percent. so um so yeah that's uh that's all I've watched because, of course, we've watched quite a few episodes of a few different TV shows. Dan, should we dive into those? Do you know? I wonder, Paul, when we say we've watched things together, do you think people <laughs> think we literally like go around to each other's house and watch stuff together? Anyway, that's what it always sounds like. But I'm intrigued. Do people think that, or do they? Do they know? Maybe if you're listening for the last couple of episodes, but if you've been listening for, uh, I'd say, 20 or more episodes, you already know how antisocial, well, certainly I am, and there's absolutely zero chance of that ever occurring. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, things that we've watched together. So what uh, what are we talking about first? Master of None. Yes, indeed. So this was one that you had already watched and you very gracefully decided to wait for me to play catch up on the third season this was a show season one and season two uh that i watched both seasons and absolutely loved and i've i remember i remember just checking online quite a few times thinking i wonder if there's another season or so because you know 2017 was a while ago and i just you know when it's been like more than sort of two or three years you sort of think ah it's obviously not there's no more coming and so this just came out of the blue so i was 
absolutely delighted when I heard that there was a, a third season. But Dan, I'm not sure how I feel about this third season. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because, you know, the for, I don't know about for you, Paul, but for me, Master of None has been such a a fun story when it's centered around Aziz Ansari's life mm. and I guess the the journey that he goes on um, trying to fall in love and live in you know live his life and you know where those sort of great moments and um, in season two where or was it season one I forget where he was over in Italy or somewhere and mm-hmm. it's just it's a, su- such a, a great story and, and you know some fantastic sort of supporting cast obviously Aziz Ansari is Dev in there and his best friend Denise like always some great banter between them and I know that you know the reason we didn't get an immediate season three or one of the reasons is um of the whole sort of Me Too movement and it's a bunch of stuff that kind of happened and turned out to maybe be not what was actually how it happened. Anyway, I don't know enough to sort of comment on um, what happened in that situation. But uh, Aziz basically came out and said something. he needed to do some soul-searching and looking before he sort of went on and made season three. Mm. And season three, much to my shock, only has a few moments of Aziz Ansari as Dev and I think when he is in that, I think it's the first episode that he's in. And when he comes in, he is the star of the room. And it's almost a no discredit to um, who this season is based around of Alicia and Denise. But I guess I I tried not to look ahead, but I was kind of wondering with this season, is this going to be a season where each episode, and there's only six, focuses on maybe some different characters and we get some kind of, you know, it all kind of gets comes together as a big story. But when all six episodes turn out to be kind of Denise, Alicia focused episodes, I not sh- I'm not I say this sort of with um take it with a pinch of salt because I feel like I want like I actually thought it was, like, the overall story was okay. I didn't mind it. I thought it was it was kind of interesting in parts. I don't know whether those particularly or those two characters I deserve their whole season to themselves. Yeah. And I just wanted Dev. The whole time I was watching it, I was like, bring in Dev. Like I, I need his humor, the way that just the way that Enzies and Sari does comedy. I love that. And it was really a, a missing element for me. I, th- I think I know exactly what you're trying to say. I think for me, the character of Denise, I find I've enjoyed her immensely over the first two seasons. However, she is at her best when she is tearing into Dev for his just his outlook on life or the, the way in which he, he leads his life. And the the chemistry between those two was what made the show funny for me. I I almost I agree what you said. However, I almost wasn't ad, as bothered about the fact that it wasn't um, Dev. I, I f- what it was was the comedy element, and I went through a series of stages of emotions and feelings watching this. There was, as I said, there was the excitement that it was back after so long. Then there was just this sort of disappointment that it wasn't as funny, you know, nowhere near as funny as season one or two. And then I got this sort of anger around the fact that they weren't even trying to be funny. 
And then, then I kind of accepted that, that, okay, it's like the stages of grief here. I accepted that they weren't trying to be funny. And then I had this sort of moment of appreciation, of, I think around episode three or four, maybe four, uh, of what actually was some good emotional writing. The acting was good, particularly, I thought, Alicia, I thought, I thought she was really, really good, you know, as, as a young mother trying, you know, so desperately to have a, a baby via IVF and... And then I got annoyed with myself uh, not having had this attitude from the start. But in the end, I, I, I just it just wasn't what I expected. And and I cannot think. And I, I wanted to ask you this: I cannot think of a comedy series um, where an entire season, after previous seasons were funny, have just gone to this dramatic and emotional thing. Because I know we've talked about like Afterlife, which intermingles it really well during a season and breeders does as well you know that sort of seriousness darkness with humor but to go from two seasons of comedy to one season of essentially an emotional drama about two people splitting up and not able to have a baby i mean that's very different i actually i I like the way you talked about sort of the different emotions with this because i think the thing is like the way this whole sort of six episode shows this five or six episode show is shot is like it's like Aziz Ansari is the director of it he's it's all shot beautifully I, I love it sort of four by three look it looks like it's kind of shot with like Leica lenses and it's got yeah. this great grain to it I think almost what it would have been better for me is it like this probably shouldn't be Master of None season three this should be its own thing that's it and then it would probably be okay like it can be a spin-off in the same the same universe right but it just kind of felt like I've. It's tough, right? Because I feel like on one hand, like you know, sure a show can change and it can be something different, but I felt like the the change felt quite drastic, mm. um, and and unexpected. And I wonder because it, I felt like this kind of just appeared on our Netflix. You know, like normally this would sort of be like heavily promoted. Mm. I wonder if. Is from a marketing perspective, is there a bit of a vibe with that as well? That we don't know what who we're kind of pitching this at for and who you you might like it, but we're not sure. Like it's yeah, different. The, the ratings certainly have plummeted. I mean, they're down in the fives, which are, you know for a show that previously was very very high. I think it's. Um, they should get these writers on um, Walking Dead. <laughs> they should. They um. Uh, I did. There was a lot about it that I liked. You know, you mentioned the four-three ratio. I love that. There was a lot of single camera angle scenes with prolonged. Um, you know, the camera doesn't move; it's just stayed it stays on frame. But sometimes I think they went too far. Sometimes you know, it was uh, was it Denise who was just eating like a sandwich for two minutes straight, sitting in a car with no dialogue, and I felt at times they were trying a bit too hard to be a bit too something or other. That uh, I thought that that was. You know, the dancing when they were doing the washing, it was funny at first, then I got annoyed. And then at the end, it was funny again because I've been on the journey with them. I was like a petulant child watching it at times because I was like, I'd got to the point where I was so angry. I was like, I'm not going to enjoy this no matter how good it is. And I, um, yeah, I I wish I'd listened to this podcast before I watched it because for anyone who might, you know, go into it, I think if you if you go into it knowing that this is no longer in any way, shape or form a comedy show, there, there are some funny moments. I shouldn't say that, but it's it's not out and out at all. It's a, it's a shock. Yeah, you, you could almost watch this season independently, I think, without 
having ever seen any of the other seasons yeah. and you'd probably get something different out of it. And it's not that what they're serving up you don't like. It's just not... It, if you walk into a, a milkshake store, Dan, and let's say you order, I don't know, a spearmint milkshake, right? And you get served up uh, a burger. It's not that you don't like burgers, right? It's that you're expecting a milkshake and you've asked for a milkshake. And the last two times you've come into the shop, they've given you a milkshake. <laughs> I think that's the thing, eh? Because like, the acting's good. It's shot beautifully. The story's actually kind of interesting. It just wasn't what I asked for. Yep. So, like, it's, Yeah. And I think that's where it's sort of a weird tension because, you know, it was actually kind of an educational story, to be honest. Um, and I felt like I, I learned a bunch of stuff through it. Um, but that wasn't what I was looking for. Never give me a lime milkshake pour when I want spearmint. Just because they share the same colour, they're definitely not the same flavour. I have heard that about you from somewhere. I'm not sure where, no, but yeah, definitely have heard that. So, um that is Master of None Season 3, and uh, next, then, we are going to talk about uh, Mayor of Easttown, which, again, you uh, sort of touched on last week because you had seen and, again, gave me the chance to play catch-up, so I watched the, the seven episodes. If this isn't the show you're interested in or you don't want spoilers, use the show notes uh, timings to, to fast-forward on through um, this one. A detective in a small Pennsylvania town investigates a local murder while trying to keep her life from falling apart. Uh, from Brad Inglesby, starring Kate Winslet. Dan, what are you thinking? Amazing, Paul. This, this honestly, Kate Winslet has come out like a boy out of the gate. She has got some mega acting chops. She's completely owned this character. I believe the whole time that she was was playing this detective um i i felt the the pain the burden the baggage that she had as a as a character that the story was gripping i watched episodes back to back i couldn't imagine having to wait for episodes on this like i just i savored every minute of the show and in the end i was kind of like it was quite a nice package but it also kind of left a bit of a uh, a, a darkness and a bit, of, a bit of a hole in your heart because it's such a an interesting story where you, you know. And I think we've we've experienced this with a lot of shows that we've watched, particularly in the sort of that I, I sort of generalise the category as the the BBC realm, where you know it starts off as a you know a bit of a small town thing. Turns out everyone in the town's got some some dirt, some sort of dark and dirty past, and it all kind of comes together. And I think they just did such a, a fantastic job. Of telling the story and I was on the edge of my seat the whole time yeah I agree with with everything you said and, and you, you sort of touched on it last week when you you said suffice to say all the guns you and that gave it a high expectation for me and it lived up to it everything you said I mean there is a real for anyone who's watched Broadchurch you know we think about those sort of BBC the, the Broadchurch one is the one that really comes to to mind doesn't it uh in terms of you know everyone in the village has got something going on so you start to suspect everyone which is great because the way they the way they portray everyone's story um there's 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 no way you can rule them out and so even the most sherlock of observers watching it are forced to have to consider all things going on and um look can i just say i also agree wholeheartedly around the kate winslet factor she it's interesting, right? Because she's not someone 
She's not someone I ever went to see a movie because she was in it. She's always good in, in anything I've ever seen. And I know obviously she's shot to fame with Titanic and all this, but I will, you know, if, if we ever do a peak performance on Kate Winslet, I can hundred percent guarantee you this, this is it. She is just immense in this role. She just, her accent as well. That was really, really good. Really convincing. Like, um, that's, I don't know what the, um, I'm not even going to try and guess where it's where it's from, but it's 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 quite it's not a generic for if without any offence, it's not a generic American type accent. It's very specific, and I thought she was just really really good. And I mean, the whole support cast as well with her as well were were just in in great form. But like you said, you you leave this, it's so intense, it's it's so sad, and it it is it always kept me guessing as well. Yeah, I think it's. I would probably most closely link it to maybe a bit of a, a Boston accent, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of got that real sort of um, intensity to it. And I think you, like I just I, I just imagine you spend hundreds of hours in front of a mirror practicing to sort of get that that dialect down. Um, I, I think as well as that, it's just got such a, a stellar cast that go alongside Kate Winslet, Jane Smart, who plays her mother. It's got Guy Pearce. It's um. Uh, David Denman, who plays um, Mia's husband, like it's just it's. I'm I'm with you. Like throughout the whole the whole movie, I was constantly being like, "That's the person that did it. That's the person that did it. That's the person that that did it." And I never once got it right. Yeah, and and that that what we just said about the cast that goes all the way through to the kids as well. And I thought all of the kids were 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 great great actors and actresses. Even even the young the young boy. The one in the bath when the mum falls asleep. I mean, mm. there are shows that, as a parent of young kids, I I find myself shaking my head as I'm watching it, thinking I should not be watching this. I can't cope. And this is one of them. Um, but even the actress who played Erin, I can't see her on the list. Here. Even she was really good at sort of because that was really important as well because so much of the story revolves around her. She was good too. I think too, you know that moment where that that kid almost drowns in the bath. I I was just remember. I remember saying to Samara. Mia can't take anymore. Like mm-hmm. she's got too much, too much baggage. Like if this kid dies, she's going postal. Like there is no way she can handle this. And do you know what? I was at that same moment when I, and I remember looking at Diana and saying this. I think like I, I was if I was if I was about to offer one criticism, and I didn't have to because they didn't go there with that scene. I thought, are they gonna are they gonna do like a Yellowstone season one? where everything that can go wrong does because that's when it just just tips the balance not of complete believability but it just becomes a little bit much and it was just a really good not tease that's the wrong word but it was just it was just enough just to really get you really worried yeah they, they sort of lean into it but just yeah enough to make you scared and then they pull back um yeah i i think the other thing that you know a show like this often does and it's anytime there's any sort of teenagers involved it just actually reminds you how horrible kids are mm-hmm. to one another, and <laughs> like that, like they just and then you know to everyone else's face they're kind of like nah That's nah right. I didn't do that nah I didn't see anything but <laughs> That's right. you know on in the next breath they're bloody pointing guns at each other and taking videos of beating each other up it's it's God oh, it's, it's bloody horrible I, I can't even imagine growing up in a world of social media oh I can't oh unthinkable wasn't it Guy Pearce as you said 
always great to see him. We always enjoy seeing him. But you were right to call out Jean Smart. I thought her relationship with uh, with with Kate Winslet, so that that mother daughter relationship, that dynamic was absolutely brilliant. There was so much about the mum that just. I I don't know. I could just like when she, she had the ice cream hidden inside the the empty bag of frozen veg. That's a genius idea. Why haven't I thought of that? It's brilliant. I thought she was great. Yeah, I think it's um it's one of those shows. I think like, I kind of like that it's a limited series. I I I like the idea that we've kind of we've been through this real sort of dark experience. Every not every, but a lot of the characters, I guess had a chance to have a, a really good arc in the story, even though there was obviously, you know, Kate Winslet was was the main um, actress. And I think, you know, they they told the story that they needed to tell. They gave all these extra characters a, a chance to kind of grow and then kind of give them a, a fitting conclusion. And I, I like with a series like this that they're like, nope, this is this is seven episodes. We're done. Um, we, we don't want to come back to it. I mean, I think that's a cool way to go into it, like knowing that is so much better. Mm. No, 100%. Look, I, if if you haven't watched this and you've still continued to listen to us talk about it, even though we've we've said a, a few things, we haven't spoiled too much, I don't think. Honestly, this is all the guns, right? Just go see it. it definitely, it's all the guns. And I think, you know, when you're talking about a binge, it's only seven episodes. They're all out now. You can see it on Neon um, here in New Zealand. HBO probably in um, America. It's 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 just so good, and it's not very often that you come across a TV show of this quality, just kind of out of the blue. And um, I think you know we probably jumped on it just the right time. Like when I started watching it, and we only had to wait a few days for the final episode to come out. So yeah, definitely get amongst that. It's going to be a show that I'm going to be recommending for years to come. Definitely, and I would not be surprised then to see this one crop up when we do our top 10 TV shows of the year later this year as well. Indeed. So shall we move on through to this week's installment of the bad batch season one, episode six, uh, the always exciting synopsis from Disney is on a mission to acquire a valuable asset. The batch encounters smugglers after the same target. This is actually a, a very descriptive synopsis. It is for, actually uh, the bad batch compared to most of them. It, it is, um, and I just to kick us off, I will say I enjoyed this one in a kind of along the same vein as to why I think I enjoyed last week's um, episode with with the rancor. I enjoyed the way that it dipped into a different sort of era of star wars um, and and this one of course the links were to the prequel movies and to to the clone wars season seven um and into solo nicely done yes exactly right and and i also what was the thing i was gonna say um oh it's oh no what you said last week um i really like seeing one of your predictions start to sort of ruminate and take a bit more shape with wreckers ongoing sort of headaches and head pains i missed that last time and i think you were right on the money this guy is at some point the, the chip is going to click over so um yeah this was look i, I don't want to get overly excited this was this was this was okay this wasn't out of the gate but this was this was good and i enjoyed it what about you yeah look i i'm the same i 
I had a good enough time. Um, nothing super special, I guess. The the great thing about this episode, it was quite an action packed episode um, compared to some maybe the last couple of episodes. Um, obviously, the whole thing was largely sort of contained uh, in that factory, and it was sort of interesting to bring some old um, old droids back into the into the mix and. Um, use them in a, a way to kind of help the Bad Batch. I thought it was a little bit better that, you know, when I think about last week's episode, you know, they're telling Omega, stay on the ship, don't get into trouble, whereas this week they're just like, Omega, you're part of the crew. We're not even going to tell you to stay behind, just come with us. It, that was kind of better. Omega still had sort of those some of those annoying tendencies, but in, in general kind of, um, I guess, held her own. I, I, like the, I like the fact that they're kind of building her up to – um, use this laser bow type thing um, it kind of has some um, um, good sort of force connections as well you know when she's using it they're telling her to kind of like block everything out and you know focus and mm. it, it says something interesting there I'll tell you Paul one thing that's kind of been on my mind and I I haven't I haven't bothered to google this because that that would be a full measure but could we potentially see Omega in the Mandalorian, uh, I guess that's a real possibility, given how young she is. How young she is now, I, I feel like if they were to do that, that would have a uh, that would have a very limited impact on the audience watching the Mandalorian. And I was going to talk about not 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 Omega in this respect, but actually the the characters, uh, the Mates sisters trace and rafa matters um so yes i think i think you're right i think it could but i would say it would it would only really have a limited impact so um yeah yeah that, that's probably true um I, I guess the the big question really is um from this episode thinking about those sisters and their connections to ahsoka tano and um the wider sort of resistance it will be it, i'm interested in your thoughts on who was the character they were talking to um, at the end of the episode, yeah, that's that's the big question, isn't it? And that's another thing that sort of got me really piqued my interest because it left it on a real good ending. Um, I, I honestly don't know, and I am awful at making predictions in the Star Wars space, as we've learnt to our horror over the last year or so. Um, I, I feel like it's, I feel like just like just to switch streams here with um with fear the walking dead when they were building up who this who this bad guy was and it turned out to be some nobody called teddy i feel like disney are a bit smarter than that uh i feel like the way that they've deliberately hidden it from us means that this is someone we obviously know um but no i i can't pick it i can't pick it what have you got a prediction uh i think it's i think it's bail organa um and i think it's kind of uh like i i don't think it's going to be, I, I think that an obvious guess would be Ahsoka, mm. but I feel like there's too much Ahsoka stuff going on in the Star Wars universe right now. And I know that, you know, that to bring her in would, you know, there, there could be some references to her. I, I know that there's, you know, the R7 droid, yeah. um, which Ahsoka has a, has a connection to. But I, I, I think that someone like Bail Organa is a much more safer bet. And 
kind of still provides the the wider sort of Star Wars connection. And I think much like the Rancor, these little connections that they're making to the wider universe are the things which are keeping me hooked in. Yeah, and I think actually Battlegano is a really good shout, actually, because I was trying to think who isn't just specific to the animated series, but is also, you know, in the movies to have that sort of impact. And if you think about, like, I've got a latent memory of what the sort of the, the hologram, the, the sort of the the cloth or the clothing that we did see looked like it could be quite consistent with Bale. So that's a, that is a really good shout. The, um, the point I was going to make, uh, when you, when you talked about Omega being in the Mandalorian, like I thought it was pretty cool that we got to see, um, Rafa and Trace, Tracy or Martez, um, because, you know, we, we'd seen them for three or four episodes in the last, you know, in that final season of of Clone Wars with with Ahsoka, where she met them, of course, and so bringing their story into this is great. But they're not well known Star Wars characters at all, um, so this isn't like last week with with you know with, with Bib Fortuna. And I guess what I'm saying is, and this is in line with the Omega comment you made, is that it, it's for any new viewers, it would have meant absolutely nothing, of course, who these these sisters were, and that's fine. But um, yeah, the the deeper the, the Bad Batch goes in terms of its connections to Clone Wars or Rebels and so on, as much as that also, that's awesome for, you know, cool people like us that watch all the canon content, <laughs> the, the, the more specific the audience becomes in terms of someone being able to appreciate everything. Um, it's, I don't know, I mean, ultimately they're never going to satisfy all, all audiences, I guess, but um, it's... Uh, it, I don't want to go off track too much, but it, what it resonated with me in my mind was the, there's a new Star Trek series coming out, which is focused on this, this organization called Section 31, which is basically like the, the Secret Service or FBI, Black Ops or whatever. And unless you've witnessed this organization through Deep Space Nine and Enterprise and Discovery and, and so on, it's not going to resonate with the mainstream audience. And so while I'm looking forward to it as a Star Trek fan, it wouldn't be surprised to see if that's if it actually fails. And I just I just think that breaking I don't think Breaking Bad's gonna Breaking Bad. What do we call it Bad Batch? I don't, I don't think Bad Batch is gonna fail, but I think it's dancing along that line um a little bit. And so I think the types of conversations we're having are great for us, but I wonder what a mainstream audience is making of it. It also makes me wonder, I guess, again you know, who, who, who are they pitching this at? Because I think another thing they keep sort of really hamming up in these episodes is, for example, when the, the clones got given this mission to go and retrieve the droid head and bring it back, and then the, the two sisters are like, who are you doing that for? And the clones are like, I don't know. It was easier being a soldier. Like, And I feel like they're trying to sort of play out this storyline. And I feel like they have a little um, connection to this in every episode where the clones are kind of like learning to think for themselves or realizing they shouldn't just blindly follow orders but it's it's and I don't know whether they're doing that intentionally but it seems to sort of be a, a bit of a repeating pattern for me mm. and again is that is this the right uh forum to be sort of like going too deep on what what a clone should or shouldn't do and I I I don't know. I, I, it still just sort of has questions for me about what's the what's the core audience for this because as you say is it for the sort of the the hardcore Star Wars nerds who are looking for all those connections? Mm. Is it um, for a newcomer trying to sort of bridge the gap between um, Revenge of the Sith and a new like? Well, what are we what are we doing here? Yeah, 
and I, again, not to take us off course, but you know, if you think about Clone Wars or Rebels, six episodes in by now, we would have had two or three lightsaber battles in both of those series, which regardless of, uh, of what you think about any of that from a young audience perspective, I think that brings a certain level of excitement. And um, of course we're not getting that because of the era that we're, this series is based in, which of course is great, but it's, it's a, the one thing this episode did have, and this is a total geek moment for me. I've always loved the, the tactical droids from, from Clone Wars. I, I, of all the droids in the prequel era, I just love the look of them, the design of them, how the mouth, how it talks and the, the sound of the voice has like a real 80s um, Cylon from Battlestar or like a, a, a Transformers Soundwave. I, I, I love the tactical droid. So I was, I was geeking out on that. I thought it was, yeah, look, it was a good episode. And I'm just curious, like I think you said last week, is this first season going to be like season one of Clone Wars and we're just feeling it out and we're going to test which way we need to go and who knows in a few years we might look back on this fondly and it will be an interesting thing yeah indeed indeed shall we move on over to fear the walking dead let's go there so season six episode 15 uss pennsylvania in a race against time to stop Teddy's plan, motives are revealed and convictions are tested as Morgan and his allies infiltrate and make their way through the beach submarine that holds the tools for Teddy's destruction. If you're not a fan of Fear the Walking Dead, again, use the show notes. Dan, we have a submarine in The Walking Dead. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, um... Look, I feel like there's, there's, there's some good things and there's, there's still some challenges for me. I think, you know, pretty cool having the submarine. I think really interesting concept. I like that these keys have all kind of meant something. I enjoyed the episode overall. But I'll tell you, Paul, the thing that frustrates me is I get so sick of Morgan and Carol constantly being like, I'm just going to sacrifice myself on this mission. <laughs> like right. I've, I, I'm, I'm done. And then they get talked out. It's, it's like, how many times can we have these two characters constantly be like this? And it's, it's funny because at the start of the episode, when Morgan picks up his axe, or his, his staff with the, the axe head on it, I was like, yeah, it's on now. Like, Morgan's back. Yeah. We're back, baby. And then when we sort of get in the submarine, and it's kind of like he's a bit like, oh, I'll just I'll just sacrifice myself. It's like, oh, God, come on, Morgan. Um, I didn't like how easily his staff broke. I thought, you know, Victor really sealed his, you know, his place as a piece of garbage um, for trying to sacrifice um Morgan, but at the same time, you know, that's what Morgan wanted. So maybe Victor's the hero. I don't know. Uh, I have a couple of things to say. So I'll, I'll start with, I'll go with you on this. So so Morgan, he is another favorite character you know, of ours. And so, like, you know, when he does go on these, I have to sacrifice myself for the good of the group. What what frustrates me the most out of that is it, it's not so much that he should sacrifice. It's, it never feels like anyone a hundred percent has to sacrifice sacrifice themselves at all to get the job done. It's it's really tiring. And it there was a moment where at the end where he says, Oh, you know, fine, we got it just a little sooner. If you if you rewatch the episode, and I haven't rewatched it all, but I did go back a little bit, 
him and Strand are sitting around arguing in the sub for a good four to five minutes, trying to psychoanalyze each other and all this other crap. And as we saw, they only needed to be there at the missile control thing 10 seconds earlier. So that was, that was a bit weak from, again, from the writers, not from, not from Lenny James, not from Morgan. It's, it's the writers who are giving him these lines, right? To, to your other point around Strand sealing his fate as a piece of garbage. Um, I, I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't understand Strand's, you know, Diana and I watched this together and neither of us really were quite clear what Strand's intentions were when he pushed Morgan into the walkers and then, and then seemingly also went on a mission that would put his own life in perilous danger. It was like, was he expecting that Morgan would come out of that situation? I don't see how he, he could have, even if he was expecting it, he couldn't have guaranteed it. So it was just, it was quite ambiguous. I also feel like um, what I'm just, you know, one of my favorite things to do is pile on the show. Mm. And, you know, the, obviously the other thing is we've got the whole cast. We've got, um, we've got Dwight, we've got uh, Luciana, we've got Sarah, we've got Charlie, we've got Wiz. They're all just, they're all just standing out up on the hill watching the submarine. We actually don't have any part for them. You, look. It's a bit small in the submarine. We can't take everyone. You guys stay on top of the hill. And I just felt like it was kind of just wasted. And like it was, it was cool and bad that obviously they they launched a a, a missile with a whole bunch of warheads in it. And we don't quite know what that's going to mean. But at the same, like, it's kind of frustrating because, so we've got this, we've got crazy old Teddy who's doing crazy old serial killer stuff. And he probably should have been finished, but he's probably going to get a second chance. He'll be bloody working in the gardens of Fear the Walking Dead next season. You know, like, what? where's the moral compass, Paul? He's going to be in the garden. Look, I, 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 I'm trying to come at this a little more positively because I have to say this show has a – not this show, but the Walking Dead franchise has a, has a tendency to drag some things out. And so I was quite surprised that we got to, A, see this submarine that – so quickly after only just hearing about it and be getting quite a lot of i thought really awesome um exterior shots and then what am i up to see seeing so much of the inside like that cannot have been a set that they had to have filmed that on some old sub i guess but um you know i i feel like the other thing was I felt a bit surprised. I feel like TV shows have done this to me lately. So the other week we were talking about Handmaid's Tale when I said I did not expect June to make it to Canada. You know, I did not for a second think she'd get across on the boat. I did not for a second expect that Teddy would successfully launch a nuclear missile. And that's, you know, that's not what happens. What we get is the threat of that happening and then the heroes get there and stop it. You know, it's like when James Bond gets caught by the villain, you always know he's going to escape. And Dan, we have a nuclear missile in the sky. So regardless of what we think about this episode, we can put that behind us now. At the moment, we've got a nuclear missile in the sky, and I don't know how the riders are going to get around that one. I imagine it's going to like end up landing in the sea or somewhere, or it's not going to like fire off the warheads or something ridiculous is going to happen. I guess it... It depends on how good they actually are at the sort of targeting business and is it actually performing as it needs to. For some reason, I've got the feeling it's going to somehow turn out to be a dud and there might be some area of the map that they don't go to now because there's 
wait, there's already walking dead people around. I, I don't know. Like it just I feel like there I, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But I hope there's not just some sort of like cop out of how this because it would actually be interesting to see what are the consequences of this actually exploding and how much worse it can get for the survivors. Um, you know, maybe if anything, it could actually cull down the main cast and we could get back to a real like tight core Fear the Walking Dead um, group. I'm on board with that. I'll tell you one person who can go straight away, and that's Dakota. And I'm not just on the hate train because she killed my favourite character, John. But, like, you know, when I said I wanted retribution against her and any pangs of guilt I may have felt saying that in anger at, at the time have now been swept away because, once again, she stuck a gun in someone's face at the wrong time. And honestly... Just like with Alpha, I'm ready for her to to go full zombie. Um, but but hey, I'm I'm I don't have too many complaints because I'm I'm excited to see how we're going to deal with what we've got in in the sky right now in the next episode. So I felt like we got something very different at least. Yeah, look, look, and as much as I'm giving it a hard time, I, I thought it was actually a, a good episode, and I think they've actually delivered a lot this season. And as far as penultimate season, penultimate mm. episodes go. Um, I think, you know, we, we started with a bang. Um, we're potentially going to end with a bang. And it's going to be interesting to see whether this is a storyline that wraps up or whether it's going to be something that continues into season seven. So definitely looking forward to uh, the next episode. Yes, one more to go. So uh, let's skip across into our Handmaid's Tale episode this week, season four, episode eight, Testimony. June confronts Fred and Serena in court and challenges Emily to face a painful reminder of a Gilead past. Lawrence presents Aunt Lydia with a newly captured familiar handmaid. Damn wedding. Uh, I thought this was an absolutely stellar episode. I am loving the pace that they're moving. I'm loving that we've already had, we've already just arrived in Canada. We've already got a showdown with the Waterfords. It's already some interesting um, power dynamics playing out there. I absolutely, like, Elizabeth Moss actually directed this episode. Mm. And I think absolutely smashed it. She has some stellar scenes. One of my favorite lines from this episode was when um, I think they were asking her if she's going to be, is she nervous about seeing the Waterfords? No. And she's like, I can't effing wait. And I was like, this this is the June that I've been wanting for a long time. And I feel like she, she she's really quickly evolving into that character. And I just, I love how sort of like dark and gritty it's getting. I'm loving seeing the Waterfords again. I thought it was a real surprise twist for me when um, outside the, the the courthouse, I guess, when there were those uh, protesters or who were actually advocates for Gilead and what they were doing. Um, so as, as far as the whole June Waterfords, what's happening um, in Canada, I, I thought it was great. What about you, Paul? Oh, look, I agree with with everything you said there another great episode another great ending there's a there's at least two or three shocking events in the in the episode which is great i feel like it's now definitely if it wasn't already definitely our best weekly show that we're we're watching together but in separate houses um it's we're always together yeah, it's, it's i think the most shocking thing that you just touched on for me because there was a few things that were shocking but just to go with what you talked about first the crowd's reaction to the waterfords as they exit the courthouse and firstly firstly we see serena again um changing her behavior based on the crowd to benefit herself based on 
you know everything that she said to fred just 30 seconds later she's she's again just and i think it's great writing because it seems at face value to be impossible to think that people might react positively to to fred and to serena given what they've done given how june has just described it as well i mean that that was shocking to listen to little anything else is like a a horrible trip down memory lane of the things we've seen over the previous seasons but and this is where i think as the audience i need to think about how it would actually feel to be the people living in this world where across the planet there's this declining birth rate syndrome and so having children is no longer a thing it's exceptionally rare and so many people living in this world are like um they're they're living in fear of not being able to to have a legacy or leave anything behind and many of those would be desperate to do whatever they can to have a kid so when they see a couple who's regardless of everything else but this couple whose ways whose methods whose beliefs or whatever it is has brought life into this world brought them a child it's provoked that reaction for, for some of those people, I still think the majority of the people would be like you and I sitting there thinking, what the hell is this? How can you be cheering? Blessed be the Waterfords and free the Waterfords and all the rest of it. But I find it really interesting to think that that's, that's something that could happen. It's, it's, I don't want to get into it, but it reminds me of like, you know, the, the Trump campaign and, and it's like people will buy into whatever's being sold depending on the situation they find themselves in. I actually thought it was a um it was good that they reminded us that global birth rates are declining. Mm. And I know that they've I actually said to Samara, I'm like, Oh, that's right and she's like, Oh, they've brought that up in a few episodes, but I'd forgotten. And I think in, in earlier seasons they had kind of mentioned it. It might have been on I, I can't remember how they did it, but it was a good reminder that this isn't just the Gilead thing, this is this is the global thing. And it makes me wonder, Paul, this is a, a wild a wild prediction. If Serena ends up back in Gilead, is she going to become a handmaid? Because if she if she can have children, like, and depending on her, you know what what happens with her and Fred, you know, who knows what could happen there for the for the greater good of Gilead. Well, you've, what you've done there is you've jumped. I don't know what assumptions you've made to get to that point because. Regardless of the crowd's reaction outside, they're they're on trial, and the Canadian court is surely going to rule. Like it's almost a formality. It's almost like a, you know, they're they're guilty. How are they getting out of Canada? Why? Are, let's just talk about this court thing for a moment. Where? Why aren't they handcuffed with guards? They're just like walking out of that courtroom, like they're just going to pop down the Starbucks and get a frappuccino, like. I, I was just like, you guys are just walking around like you're free. Like you guys are prisoners, but you're kind of in these luxurious, architecturally designed prison cells with, you know, rain windows and one tree, and you've got um, matching uh, furniture to your chosen, you know, that green dress color. Yeah. Actually, speaking of that, what I'm what I'm ranting about this stuff, Paul, and this is a positive rant. Another big thing in this episode. Um, I don't know if you noticed when they had their in the library and they were having their support group meeting and all of those lampshades look like handmade head things yes. and I just I really appreciate the attention to detail that the show has on things like that they always have these like subtle nods to things which connect it to the wider universe that they're operating in nicely picked up on nicely picked up on it's um yeah I, I have no idea why they're walking around so freely um 
and that's uh, the the barrister, the lawyer who questions June and puts twists things around to make it sound like actually, you know, she she's actually the one who's at fault here, and you know the way she phrases things. To did she not see the way she spoke to Serena last week? She's a brave lawyer. Yeah, she is a brave lawyer. I but I do. I've got another question about that, and I wonder: is this? Like, would, would Fred Waterford, and I mean no disrespect to anyone, uh, just in the context of this TV show, would Fred Waterford have a female lawyer? Like, it it kind of, like, seemed almost kind of out of character that that he would have a woman speak on his behalf, considering all of the, the Gilead belief systems, particularly about women not being able to read and all that type of thing. Um, that was quite surprising to me. But, again, I – that whole scene, I love how strong June has become. And when her partner um, came into the courtroom, uh, Luke, I was, I was thinking, oh, Luke, don't do it. And then, like, in a way, though, it was kind of good for him to hear all that stuff. And almost like, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of really felt for June and, and how hard it must have been to, like, deliver those lines in a, you know, a room with a million sort of people watching you and the camera in your face and, you know, such kind of like emotional stuff. And I, I thought it was incredible. Yeah, look, I um, when Luke walked into the courtroom, my, 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 my thoughts were the same, but he only heard some of the truth though, didn't he? Like, um, like he... <laughs> June obviously didn't tell the full story, and I wonder if that will will at any point come out about her her relationship with Nick, that the things that were happening of their own free will. Um, Luke and Moira are really not coping with this June that has come back from from Gilead. It is not the same person, and, and I, I guess why would we expect it to be? To your earlier point, I actually thought that the Canadians would deliberately give the Waterfords a, a female lawyer but given that they are fully aware of the fact that that in, in within the, the the setup within the Gilead way of life that that women cannot 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 have any roles high up um that they would deliberately have done that almost as a as a bit of a screw you kind of thing that's how I looked at it but who knows um um where else are we going with this episode? There was something else I wanted to talk about. We probably should talk about Janine and oh, yeah. uh, Commander Lawrence. So there's a, there's a few things there. So, I mean, I guess that was the most shocking thing. The biggest surprise was perhaps this news flash that Lawrence gave Lydia about Janine, because you know we've heard nothing for her about her for two or three episodes after the bombing. Uh, you know, and all the focus being on June being freed, of course. Um, but she's another great character, and and I and you know, and the fact that. Lawrence then sends Lydia out to deal with Janine as she sees fit, and of course, we've we've just witnessed Aunt Lydia's um, her anger, her inability to control her anger, and how much she despises other people's attitudes, combined with, I guess, her own her own mistreatment in her eyes, uh, has led to this. She's spiraling. She's in this desperate state. She looks out of control and. You know, that came to a head when she uses, I shouldn't laugh, she uses the cattle prod not only against the, the hammy, but also against the other ant. Like she's basically 
bullying in this fit of rage and so when she sends when sorry when lawrence sends lydia out to and he says do do with janina as you see fit you know almost i was the anticipation is that she's gonna take all of her rage out like a like a like a sith lord that's captured a jedi but instead she delivers the complete opposite it's actually a really interesting dynamic isn't it because on one hand i'm like you know Commander Lawrence has often been a, a friend of the Resistance. He's definitely been a friend to June, but also almost uh, the the way that we see his kind of story act play out now, I, I actually don't know what side of the fence he's actually kind of on. Particularly the way he's just you know pretty much given um, Aunt Lydia carte blanche over what happens with Janine, um, and then I think like you, I was expecting Aunt Lydia to be quite intense, and then there's sort of quite a moment between Janine and Aunt Lydia and. I, I could definitely kind of see a, I think a, a big sort of um, arc for Aunt Lydia and potentially potentially changing sides. Um, but I always there's always been quite a sort of special relationship I think between Janine and Aunt Lydia. Yes, there has indeed. And talking of ants, of course, one of the other there's so much to talk about in this episode. Look at the time at which we're recording here, Dan. This is uh, incredible, but. How is this ant, this other ant, I've forgotten her name now, the other ant who was previously in Gilead, how is she freely walking around in Canada after she's done what she's done? And, and okay, by the end of the episode, she's, she's, she's hung herself based off of Emily's, um, uh, you know, I, I expect nothing or I don't want you to do anything. Like, how was she just freely walking around? Well, so she pretended to be a refugee. It was Oh, that's how she um, got in, but how is she? Yeah. Well, I guess um, once I, I guess I'm, I, I'm imagining that she was kind of revealed as a as an aunt at some point by one of the many people that have sort of escaped and kind of outed her as this person. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like it's, I, I guess what we don't really know the the true sort of like the the BA processes and hierarchy around around all of this stuff around how people sort of transition in and out of it, and we only sort of get a a glimpse of certain people's lives um, in this space. But yeah, it was interesting. There's there's definitely some interesting um, plot points that would be great to explore. But I guess every time we explore them, it kind of takes us away from the main story, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. And at the centre of it all is June, as you said at the start, her character is just really revving up. She's confronting everything head on. She's not only fearless, she's got that just bring it attitude, you know, like, you know, her, her attitude towards going into the courthouse and the way she looked at the end of this episode when she realizes that she's, she started to get this fire going within this, 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 this group of women in Canada. I, I just start to wonder what the resistance on the other side of, of Gilead might look like. She's going back, Paul. She's going back. She's going to get Luke. I don't care what Karen says. She's going back <laughs> to get Luke, and she's going to lead a resistance, and she's going to basically flip um, Gilead back into America or whatever it becomes. But I think the, the way that this is setting up, like she's going to find it way too uh, – not enough action for her. Nothing's like being on the side of the border. She's not able to give the help she needs. She's going to want to go back and get her daughter. I don't think the story's played out between her and Luke. Like there, there is unresolved things that need to be dealt with. I wouldn't be surprised if Luke actually dies at some point, but um, I definitely think at some point uh, next season, she's going back. She's going back. She's going back to Nick. 
we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot going on, and yeah, I, I, I do look forward to the next time. But for now, Dan, let's leave it there, and let's uh, let's head on over to our uh, movie of the week feature. All right. So every week, Paul and I take turns choosing a different movie of the week. If you'd like to find out what that movie is, then you should come and join us on our Half Measures uh, Discord page, um, where you can check in, see what that movie is, watch along with us. Um, yeah, I get amongst it. So this week's movie is uh, Mulan. So this is a, another Disney movie. So it's been quite a, a Disney heavy weekend for me. So Mulan is a remake of a, a movie that originally came out in 1998 so only just over 20 years ago and it's basically about a, a young Chinese maiden who d- disguises herself as a male warrior in order to save her father and so sort of the the, the basic premise of the show is um, the emperor conscripts everyone um, every family to basically one male from every family to come and join the army um, Mulan's father is he was formerly a, a warrior. He's too old now to really fight. He's, he's got a bit of battle damage. He only has two daughters. Mulan is uh, a very adventurous, um, uh, adventurous sort of brave, courageous um, young girl. She has a, a, a power which they refer to as chi in this movie and basically ends up taking the place of, of her father and goes to fight for the emperor, trying to hide her identity the whole time until she can't hide it anymore. What did you think of this one, Paul? To be honest, Dan, I w- I'm really keen to hear your view first, and that is mainly because – well, okay, I'll, I'll say this much. I I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. I, You know how we talked about Master of None – season three being such a surprise it wasn't what we expected Mulan is scoring so low and people that I'm talking to you know uh, are not enjoying it and yet Mulan felt as much as like a Disney film as I could ever have expected it to be it had all the classic ingredients and together they tasted just right to me in terms of what I, I don't understand why it's going so low because I thought this was a good movie but I'm curious to hear you tell me if you if you disagree so I thought this movie was it was awesome. I love the storyline. I love the way it was shot. I love how beautiful all of the, the scenery, the costumes um, were. The effects were incredible. I thought it did a really good job of balancing. It's a Disney movie, um, sort of about a I sort of generalize here, sort of a a Disney princess um, and the story arc that she goes on. I I really enjoyed the story. I had a lot of fun. I never found it boring. I think, you know, the the Disney movies, um, which I guess I'm more familiar with sort of from from 20 years ago, obviously they're normally animated. There's lots of singing. There's all these sort of add-on characters. I actually think this is kind of the this is perfect for me because it's it's pretty much a action adventure romp through a, a really fascinating time period mm. produced really well um with a good enough story there's lots of lots of fighting and action there's just no blood because it's disney but i highly recommend it and to be honest with you i'm kind of surprised it scores so lowly um i i would have expected this to easily be a, an eight yeah 5.7 out of 10 123,000 people have voted on that and uh like you i f- i found it to be a really good uh a remake a really good remake there was some really good 
action, I guess you'd call them set pieces. It was really um, solid family entertainment. You know, we let both our 11-year-old and 7-year-old both watch it, no problem. They enjoyed it. There was some really good humor. As you said, there was the the brilliant set designs and locations and costumes and hair and makeup. Everything, as you expect, it all looked absolutely great. Um, the voice not the voice cast the the cat the reason i said voice cast is because I, I wanted to focus in on the fact that ming now wen you know fennec shan from mandalorian herself um she got a cameo in this film she of course voiced the original mulan so she gets a little cameo but the, the, the actual cast in this movie as well i thought all did a really superb job i really had all of the same reactions to it that you did it's just i don't know it's just a mystery to me and again i've heard people at uh, my workplace sort of saying that they didn't they didn't get much of it they thought it was poor direction or the or whatever and I, i'm just not seeing it i wonder whether like i came into this movie with to be honest minimal to low expectations and in, in the sense that i didn't i didn't come into it with a negative or positive view i just came into it with oh this should be interesting um and i guess the last live action disney movie i or live action, or it would probably be the, the Lion, Lion King. King. Yeah. I don't know whether we'd call that live action. Um, but, yeah, I, I just found it a, a lot of fun. And I, I think, you know, like you said, it's, it's got a great cast. And I I wonder whether – is it too action-heavy for people? Were they sort of like – I've never seen the original Mulan myself. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just – it felt just right for me. I, mm. I don't understand where where the challenges come from, and also a, a lot of this movie was actually shot in New Zealand as well. So is that right? I did not know that. Mm. Oh, that's nice to know. I didn't. Yeah. I. Uh, who else was I going to? Oh, of course, um, Donnie Yen. I love seeing him in this as the as the commander. He's immortalized for me as as Sheru from Rogue One, and I I also thought the actress um, who who plays um Mulan um Yufei Lu I thought she was really really good as well I I really in, enjoyed her I thought she was had some uh, yeah appreciating that the special effects and all that jazz I still thought she had some pretty crazy moves in her locker I thought she was great um yeah I um yeah I would I would 100% recommend it. I don't I guess I don't have too much more to sort of specifically say about this one myself but I I enjoyed it and I guess I went into it perhaps thinking I might not again based on ratings that I saw going in. Well this is uh this is Samara's second time watching this movie. Um so she watched it another time without me. How dare she? Um and she refers to this sort of movie as the perfect uh uh daddy daughter movie. And I think, you know, that that's actually a, a good summary, right? Because it's you know, it's basically challenging um challenged in old ways it's about the the love between the a father and a daughter and um how it can sort of you know live up to the some of those traditions of um truth family and honor um look i, I would give this a three guns out of the the guns of kimbo scale I, I i would go three as well and i think that's um that's a fair i think it's a fair reflection and I think people should take note of our rating and disregard what the 123,000 other people have said. Yeah, look, th three out of four for us. Um, that's uh, of two people. So, <laughs> and I'm sure Samara probably give it a four. So it's probably like a 3.1 or something. Representative. So. It's a representative score, Dan. 
Indeed. All right. So, yeah, if you want to check out our movie of the week next week, make sure you come and check us out on our Discord channel. Shall I whip us very quickly over to the news? I'm, I'm very conscious of the time, mm. uh, but I'll whip us quickly through what's on um, my news desk this week. It looks like we are getting a Master and Commander prequel movie, um, which is coming soon. I'm not sure if you are a fan of the original Master and Commander movie ball. No. It's, it's actually it's one I need to watch again. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. I love that movie. Uh, um, it looks like we might be getting a Wedding Crashes 2, according to Owen Wilson, which I don't know about you, but I thought Wedding Crashes 1 was, was amazing. I hope if we do get a Wedding Crashes 2 that we get the same cast because we, we, we need Owen Wilson. We need Vince Vaughn. Um, they, they were the stars of that. In the same token, not sure we need a Wedding Crashes 2, but you know what, in these trying times, who knows what we need. Uh, looks like there's news that a, a Rick and Morty movie might eventually happen. Um, even though we've still got several seasons of the show to go, there's already talk that a movie might be heading our way. Uh, two other quick things. It looks like... Oh, my... Oh, there we go. So it looks like we've got another um, DC movie on the way, League of Super Pets. And so this is a, a star-studded um, cast around this animated TV show. So we've got Kevin Hart, Keanu Reeves, we've got John Kroniski, um, and they're, they're all... John who? <laughs> I can't say it, Paul. <laughs> Let's not talk about it. Uh, Dwayne Johnson. Like it's 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 going to be huge. And so... Um, Dwayne talked about this on his Instagram account. Um, and yeah, so this is going to be a movie that's coming in May 2022, I believe. So I imagine with this um, amount of uh, star power behind it, it's going to be good. And then final bit of news from me. So um, at the Cannes Film Festival, they have a, a mystery blockbuster. And that mystery blockbuster has now been announced. So... Imagine Paul, you're on the you're on the beach in France. Mm. You're at the film festival. You're very fancy. You're wearing your Louis Vuitton, and they reveal the mystery blockbuster. What do you think it is? Fast and the Furious Twenty One. It's Fast and the Furious Nine. Oh my goodness! You are correct. <laughs> Good grief! Yeah, so that's that's a thing. Um, it's getting look. It's still getting some great reviews. It's uh due to come out here pretty soon i think uh our 14th of july uh, 14th, sometime in july i believe so yeah look if it, it's made it to the Cannes film festival where's next for fast and the furious i don't know i don't know anyway that's all on that's on my desk anything on your desk for i've got a couple of things uh one of which i know will be of interest to you and, and if you haven't already heard um they have officially announced uh, season three of the umbrella academy um, that came through in, uh, this week from uh, Steve Blackman, the showrunner. He um, posted uh, a list uh, of, I believe, episode titles for that season, season three. So that's quite exciting. The rest of the things that I have um, are all, well, firstly, talking of Donnie Yen, uh, who we just talked about from Milan and Rogue One, he's signed on for John Wick Chapter 4. I mean absolute natural for that he would he'll fit straight in it's going to be that'll be great i'm sure um the, the other three things i've got all throwbacks to some some old things there is a film in development dan about a lone crime fighter 
a man who does not exist battling the forces of evil with the help of an indestructible, artificially intelligent car called Kit. They're making a Knight Rider movie. Danny McBride was the first choice to star in this film because the director wanted an actor with similar hair to David Hasselhoff. Um, McBride hasn't signed on. I think that's a good thing, despite everything positive we've just said about him. I would love it if it was done in a in a Eastbound and Down type way, and he's basically just like a real a real a hole to his car, and he just like yeah to his car to people around him. He's he's having conversations back and forth with his car. Yeah. I would a hundred percent watch that. Show. And he's got the tight jeans, the red shirt, and the leather jacket. Yep, it, it would all work well. Um, secondly, um, filming has started on Indiana Jones Five. Um, the first few shots of Harrison Ford have been captured, whether properly or not, I don't know. But um, there he is. That He's going to be age 80 when that film comes out. That's that's absolutely incredible. Some 40 years on from... 80? 80. Harrison Ford? Yeah, he's going to be... He's current, they're filming it now. He's I think he's either 78 or 79. And they've said that when this is released, and that's if it goes ahead with the schedule release, he will be 80 at time of release. This is 40 years on this year from Raiders from 1981. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Well, Harrison Ford is about 34 years old and that is as old as he's ever going to get because yeah, Jesus. It's, <laughs> it's a mistake, right? Um, and finally, the one which got me the most excited this week. So I think I must've shared it on just about every social platform I can think of was the, the tease photo that came through um, from the director of the, the flash movie, which uh, was just a very simple picture of the the michael keaton uh batman uh, logo that he has on his on his armor on his chest um with what appears to be some blood on it um i just never thought i'd see that bat suit ever again and to see that to know that that's what we're going with as well we're going to stay true to that just got me very excited this week dan very excited indeed all right. What about the mailbag? Anyone uh, writing into the show? Indeed, indeed. So we always like it when people take on some suggestions based off of our reviews and recommendations. Recommendations. This week we had uh, Michael from Charlotte in the United States of America. He went with two shows that we've recently reviewed and recommended, and he messaged us to say uh, that he's watching Line of Duty. He's just finished season two of line of duty is absolutely loving it and then he also said to be very jealous because he and his wife are watching better call saul for the first time ever four episodes in so far i'm excited to hear how that journey goes as well that's imagine watching those two shows just like trading them off one night better call saul one night line of duty i mean that's as good as it gets as far as i'm concerned so that was that was pretty cool michael also gave us um his his picks for last week's um, peak performance, which um, was uh, Emily Blunt, and uh, he went with Looper in third place. Uh, great Ryan Johnson movie. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow uh, came in second, but he just felt she needed to be in it a bit more. And number one had to be Sicario. So some good choices there from Michael. We also had Linda from the Wired Rapper uh, here in New Zealand go with uh, Devil Wears Prada. We had Ollie from the Bay of Plenty, also Edge of Tomorrow. Sarah from Porirua with with Girl on the Train. And Paddy from Time Travelling Tink Podcast gave us his 3-2-1, A Quiet Place, Mary Poppins Returns. 
that was that was okay actually. And his number one was also the girl on the train. That's the mailbag this week. Amazing. Shall we uh, head on over to our peak performances? I think so. Let's go there. All right. So each week, much like our movie of the week, Paul and I take tunes, choosing an actor, an actress, a director or a producer, and we talk about what we think are their best three, two, one movies. And I think because of time, maybe we should do a real quick sort of um, wrap through our ones tonight, Paul. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So... Blimey, this this is, this was half of Dustin Hoffman. I had sex at one point, and this is the most I've ever had. You had what? Sorry, at one point I had six choices for right. Dustin Hoffman, wow. <laughs> and I I wow. wasn't sure. Right. I wasn't. I I really struggled. <laughs> In the end, I did narrow it down. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I went with number three. I went with 1988's Rain Man. Absolutely iconic. He stole the show from Tom Cruise, which, you know, it's the Cruise, 100%, not easy to do, but he was he was just fantastic. Um, number two, 1976's uh, All the President's Men, um, classic Watergate movie, one of my favorites. I love that type of movie. Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, it's so good. Honestly, It's he's in his absolute prime in this one. But the number one for me, I in the end went with 1973's Papillion, the original movie um, opposite Steve McQueen, another actor that you, you don't steal the show away from. He was so good. He, he I don't mean to draw comparisons with the rewatch, the, uh, sorry, the, the, the remake that we watched, but um, he played the character of, of Louis Dega, who of course Rami Malek played and his performance in this just, it really helped me to appreciate Rami Malek's performance even more in that remake. I just thought that that was that was great. So that's the three I went with out of the six I had. I've never seen The Graduate and I've never seen Kramer versus Kramer. So that didn't even make it into my six. I had so much to choose from for Dustin Hoffman. What about you, Dan? Um, I actually really struggled for, I guess, different reasons with Dustin Hoffman because I feel like Dustin Hoffman is a is a common a common name in, in, in the movie-going world. But when I was going through his movies, I had actually – I embarrassingly haven't seen a lot of them. And I think, you know, when a lot of the ones which uh, would probably be the the top three for people, I, I'm just, they're, they're not even on my radar. I, I, I haven't, I've never watched Midnight Cowboy. I've never watched um, Kramer versus Kramer. I haven't seen this version of Papillion. And so I, I feel like a bit of a, a fraud. I don't know. Um, I probably shouldn't be on a podcast, to be honest. So, the three that I ended up going with, I feel like are probably not even his uh, his true peak performances. For number three, I I went for um, Kung Fu Panda oh, and his <laughs> and his role as Shifu purely for the comedy value. He was great in it. For number two, for number two, I went with Hook because that sort of really stood out for me as a uh, I guess a a peak movie in in my younger days um, for his role a, as Hook. And then number three. The, the only one that was almost sort of guaranteed to be my number one is Rain Man. So I, I embarrassingly feel like I, I haven't really delivered on this um, this round of peak performances. Oh, look, it happens all the time. There's someone comes up that the other person suggests and it's not quite in their sort of their sphere of whatever. Um, Wag the Dog was another one which was right up there for me. I love that. Runaway Jury opposite Gene Hackman. He is just one of those classics though, eh? Like, you know, the Clint Eastwoods, the Paul Newmans, the uh, Robert Redfords, the Jack Nicholsons. It's just that sort of generation. And um, 
yeah, there's some there's some real good stuff in the catalogue to go back and, and watch. Maybe we'll have some old movie of the week, so that'll be a good one. I'd love to do that. Indeed, indeed. Oh, well, Paul, that probably brings us to the end of this uh, mega episode of um, Half Measures. One of the longest episodes ever this week, supported by Time Travelling Team Podcast. And our congratulations to them on their one-year podcast anniversary so far. They've made it through 45 Doctor Who stories from 1963 to 68, spanning two Doctors. So if you are a classic Who fan, you really need to be listening to Time Travelling Team Podcast. Thanks for your support. Awesome, and yeah, congratulations on your one-year anniversary. Also, a special shout-out to our Patreon producers of the show, Samara King and Trisha Brady. If you would like to become a producer of the show and support us through Patreon, then you can find those details in the show notes below. But until next week, adios.